始めA conspiracy on a scale so immense as to dwarf any previous such venture in the history of man. A conspiracy of infamy so black that when it is finally exposed, its principles shall be forever deserving of the maledictions of all honest men. These are the famous words of Senator Joe McCarthy. Made in 1951, who basically was denouncing General George Marshall, who was at the time Secretary of Defense, and was talking about the criminal and subversive conspiracy of the communists, the enemy. It is interesting looking back in time, especially because now, legionaries, we think that we have moved on beyond the paradigm of World War II, beyond the paradigm of communism even in 1991, and if you believe Francis Fukuyama, you'll believe that we have overcome all this and come to the end of history and the triumph of liberalism as such. Yet, in the last few weeks now, we have seen the facade of already rotten structure start to crumble. Actually, precipitously so. A number of myths which exist from the 20th century, which are, of course, the Holocaust, and follow on that, the triumph of liberalism over communism, and of course, implicitly of fascism as well. We take for granted many key things about American history. We feel almost as though because we look back upon history, it is something that is set in stone, that at times it was always meant to be thus, and that is the vice of all historians, and yet, luckily, there are many men of vigor and high thumos who are able to dispel the facade or rather the veil of lies which have been cast over our eyes, especially if you're an American. Now, I'm pleased, legionaries, to have you on the Bruta Historia transmission. <clears throat> Me and Sergeant Barnes are excited since we have some R&R time. Uh, we're just parked off here coast of Libya again. However, I will say thus, I think it's important to give context to stuff, to truth that is slowly emerging, especially as, let's say, things become declassified. The CIA has recently declassified a number of documents with Joe McCarthy in it, which seem to actually, especially if you look at the riots which happened in 2020, and the rhetoric of what is called woke. However, what it is is really just Gramsciite communism. 
and without going too far into that detail, Gramsci is Antonio Gramsci is a an Italian communist who wrote that is not Marxism will not be achieved by material means, but by insinuating oneself into the culture first. So it's the same end game, different ways of maneuvering. Uh, he was on to something when he talked about how culture is the center, of course, of a political entity's life. It's how we perceive things that curate reality as opposed to reality as such, because, of course, emotions don't care about your facts. And I really do mean that. I, I believe that. I think that's we could always learn from our enemies. Any case, I think um, I wanted to backtrack and talk about World War II and communism and our place right now in, in the world, in the West. Because I think we take a lot of things for granted, as, as I stated before. But it is important to note that the choice was always a binary one. Liberalism is simply communism in a much diluted variety. It always leads to communism. Because if you understand what communism is at its core, the core ethos of equality beyond all things, it, which is their calling card, of course, that is essentially the prima facie reason for all communists and this has a lot of implications which kind of date back to the American Revolution but I do not want to get into that because that's without this outside of the scope of our conversation today however I would like to review and I'll be citing heavily from this book by this absolutely brave historian who is one of the few historians of our time, aside from David Irving, who is willing to speak truth to power, who is willing to actually look outside the paradigm, and just simply from a intellectual standpoint, how incredibly, let's say, robust a person must be, a dynamic person, to step outside of a zeitgeist and reperceive and realign events and facts along a new synthesis. So, of course, the book, the historian I'm mentioning is Sean McMeekin. He has a number of excellent books which you should read. One is on the Ru Russian Revolution, but recently he's come out with this blockbuster book called Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. In it, just to give you a quick synopsis, well, I think it's better to actually read from the, the back cover of the book itself. Probably put it in better terms than I will. I'm reading from the back right now. World War II endures in the popular imagination as a heroic struggle between good and evil, with villainous Hitler driving its events. But Hitler was not in power when the conflict erupted in Asia. He was certainly dead before it ended. His armies did not fight in multiple theaters. His empire did not span the Eurasian continent, and he did not inherit any of the spoils of war. That central role belonged to Joseph Stalin. The Second World War was not Hitler's war, it was Stalin's war. Drawing on ambitious new research in Soviet, European, and U.S. archives, Stalin's war revolutionizes our understanding of this global conflict by moving its epicenter to the east. Hitler's genocidal ambition may have helped unleash Armageddon, but as McMeekin shows, 
the war which emerged in Europe in September 1939 was the one Stalin wanted, not Hitler. So too did the Pacific War of 1941 to 1945 fulfill Stalin's goal of unleashing a devastating war of attrition between Japan and the Anglo-Saxon capitalist powers he viewed as his ultimate adversary. McMeekin also reveals the extent to which Soviet communism was rescued by the U.S. and Britain, Britain's self-defeating strategic moves, beginning with the Lend-Lease Aid, as American and British supply boards agreed almost blindly to every Soviet demand. Stalin's war machine, McMeekin shows, was substantially reliant on American support. And I'll finish it there because I think to continue would be a little bit of a mistake, but I think you understand that. And it's something that most people don't take into account. And most people don't understand that World War II wasn't fought really on any theater aside from the Eastern Front. It was, of course, Hitler's preemptive strike into Russia that we claim him to be the aggressor. However, there is something to say for uh, Stalin's aggression which provoked a response, which is really what the ultimate aim of diplomacy is, is to always, to, to always cast yourself as a defender. But I think I'm getting a little bit too ahead of myself now. We'll reassess this from the perspective of America at the turn of the century. Remember, Communism, as elucidated by Marx and Frederick Engels, of course, um, was popularized or first incept uh, kind of insinuated in the 1870s and beyond. They have their preliminary uh, heroes, you would say, in the uh, 1789 revolution, uh, especially with Robespierre and all those uh, subhumans. So anyway... Sean McMeekin is a historian. You have to remember, he's writing his piece of history in the face of a Goliath of work propaganda history, which is pinko-aligned. It's communist-aligned. The majority of academics, even today, you think it's just a new thing that these academics are communists? No, no, no. They have always been that case. They are always of that same type. Even in Nietzsche, in the 1860s and 50s and so on, when he was in school, it was dominated by these people. And so you have to understand, his book is huge, and I don't expect a th you to read, especially us pedestrians who are not dedicated academics, to read a thousand-page tome like a manic, like I am, and uh, waste your time with that. Let's get the gist of things. But remember, because he is writing such a seminal work, such a avant-garde situation, uh, he has to make a lot of detailed um, citations, he has to name names, he has to do all this kind of stuff, and it's all very important, and I highly recommend each of you buy one of his books, first of all, to support him, but second of all, of course, to educate yourself. However, for the purposes of this transmission, I'll be keeping things brief, and even in its brevity, I believe I'll have to make a couple more parts to this, so that way you don't get sick of me lecturing to you for hours and hours on end. So I'll be keeping it brief, um, but like all things, let's start from the start. The 1910s and 20s, America. The Soviet Union has come to power. So 
remember 1917 the Russian Revolution the October Revo Revolution happens and that's the first revolution and then there's a second one and a prolonged civil war between the White Army and the Red Army which is the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks as well They're, rather that's the latter and finally things stabilize in 1922 and Lenin is in power Lenin of course envisions his own brand of communism and for those of you who enjoy let's say if you're a patriot I think it's important any kind of warrior should learn from his enemy learn in all places even if it's from your enemy because learning is good it empowers you and say what you want about the communists but they know everything there is to know about power and how to attain it how to manipulate people how to keep power how to suppress revolts and I'm an avid reader of Lenin of Marx of Gramsci not because I'm a communist but because there's so much to learn from these guys I think you'd be remiss and <laughs> I mean the right wing has been losing for 2000 years aristocratic the aristocratic ethos has been under assault from the hoi polloi for 2000 years I think it's time we learn something from them don't you th don't you agree so anyway let's start from the start setting the scene as I have said before the Soviet Union has come to power all over the West idealists all the way from sympathizers of the IRA to all across the West where a destructive war of the First World War has played out millions are killed in a carnage that has never been let's say so destructive in human history before pacifists socialists liberals are spreading defeatist and demoralizing pieces of literature and philosophy and pacifism um, one of these pieces of culture which we could cite that are known to everyone is all quiet on the western front a number of other things are happening but you have to remember today we know in retrospect that tanky stalinism or the brand of lenin which is lenin uh, Marxist Leninism is like this genocidal freak ideology. They didn't know it back then. Pol Pot hadn't existed. The Cultural Revolution with Mao hadn't happened. The great purges of Stalin hadn't occurred. The depredations of World War II and the Red Army across Europe hadn't happened yet say nothing of what happened in Africa and, and uh, of course in Latin America so imagine this someone comes to you and says we can have world peace man we can have like everyone like working together and you know what there will be no fighting anymore because like there will be like no structures of domination and we'll all get together and sing kumbaya and we'll just I'll just bang your wife you bang mine in fact we won't have wives in fact Lenin actually abolished the family so they don't believe in that and uh, a number of other paraphilic kind of stuff happens but remember the pitch 
The pitch is good. The pitch comes sweet. The pitch is kingdom of heaven on earth. Everything is succulent and sweet. Everything is good. How could you? You are evil. Isn't it funny how they always frame themselves as the good? They always play to the baser instincts of man who at base, biologically speaking, is pain aversion. And so what they try to aim for is an ideology, uh, they pitch themselves as the ideology of euphoria, of painlessness, of utopia, perfect function. However, if you are a man, if you are a person, if you are a part of nature, nature itself is conflict. Nature itself is pain. Nature itself, at its core, is the will to power. However, and if we read Nietzsche, remember, Nietzsche tells us the secret to this peasant-like attitude is that basically the vast majority of people are too irresponsible to take on pain as a building type of adversity. They see it as evil. And so they're always demagogued into supporting ideologies which promise them the world and give them a gulag. But that's something we'll touch on later. But remember, Nietzsche talks about this kind of person. He is the, he is the defunct, the, the botched and the bungled, the, the lower tier ca case, the chandala case of human being who has, because of virtue of his powerlessness, has to manipulate his betters. And this is exactly what Lenin does. Lenin is a mastermind of political theology, a mastermind of psychology and social psychology and so on. But anyway, Lenin has established the Soviet Union and under Marxist-Leninism the idea is global revolution, forceful revolution. That is the brand that he's going for, is, is bloody revolution, Soviets everywhere and um, you know, the, we'll talk about other brands of communism and the brands of communism are not diverse in their ends because they all share the same end state. They, they diverge in their means. So for instance, Trotsky, which is actually the adherents of Trotskyism are the ones that are in power now of neocons. The neocons are actually Trotskyites and it's not just uh, conjecture, it's actually a proven fact. People like Francis Fukuyama, for instance, were disaffected communists that went to the Soviet Union in the 80s and fell um, out of favor for Stalinism. And so what they chose to do instead, of course, uh, was this alternate route of Trotskyism. The idea is Trotsky believed that post-scarcity environment could only be afforded to you once capitalism had culminated into a post-scarce environment. So capitalism will always be more powerful because of the fact that there is scarcity and people can leverage power against you. But that's going a little bit too far. Going back to the Soviet Union, I promise I'll continue. There's so much, I'm so sorry for constantly going on in a bunch of different branches, I apologize. Let's keep it straight to the facts. So the idea is that Lenin wants to do a world revolution and he starts what's called the International, the, the International, right? He is the fourth international and he wants to organize international communists into a wide coalition um, and it's called the common term and so on and he makes an outline 21 point outline 
of international communists to make the cut, so to speak, of his Soviet brand, of his Leninist brand. And I'll read to you here from Sean McMeekin this short passage, and we'll go from there. I'm reading McMeekin now. While many Western statesmen were shocked by such duplicitous Soviet behavior, Lenin never really made a secret of the ruthless hostility driving communist relations with the outside world. As long as capitalism and socialism exist, he proclaimed at Moscow Party Congress on November 26, 1920, we cannot live in peace. In the end, one or the other will triumph. A funeral dirge will be sung either over the Soviet Republic or over world capitalism. The lesson for Soviet foreign policy was clear. Until final victory of socialism in the whole world, explained Lenin, we must exploit the contradictions and opposition between two imperialist power groups, between two capitalist groups of states, and incite them to attack each other. Soviet statesmen should strive to increase tensions between rival coalitions in the capitalist world, a new rift between the Entente and Germany, would surely open at some point. No less promising, in Lenin's view, was the future Japanese-American war for capitalist supremacy in the pa Pacific, for the right to loot. They want to fight. They will fight. In the initial stages of a global capitalist world breaking out, excuse me, war breaking out in Europe or Asia, it would be best for communists to stay on the sidelines while the belligerents exhausted themselves. As soon as we are strong enough to defeat capitalism as a whole, Lenin vowed, we shall immediately take it by the scruff of the neck. As Lenin's brutal remarks suggest, the true face of Soviet foreign policy was revealed not in the day-to-day -day activity log of foreign and trade commissariats, where officials could be as pragmatic as they pleased so long as the agreements they signed served short-term Soviet interests, but in the machinations of the Third International or Communist International, in parentheses, common term, formed in March 1919. Following the lead of Marx's own first international, which is 1864 to 1876, the better organized yet ultimately ineffectual second international, 1888, excuse me, 1889 to 1914, would have failed to prevent the outbreak of the imperialist war, of course, World War I. The common term was explicitly devoted to world revolution and the overthrow of existing capitalist governments. The 21 conditions of membership imposed, this is important to na make note of, okay? So I'll repeat again. The 21 conditions of membership imposed on national communist parties functioning as sections of the executive committee of the Communist International, ECCI, in Moscow, divided up party organizations into legal and illegal branches. With the latter functioning as shadow communist governments ready to take power, come the revolution, condition two, with an eye on the Bolsheviks' own hostile takeover of the Russian Imperial Army via Leninist defeatist peace platform in 1917, condition four required communist parties to carry out persistent and systematic propaganda and agitation among the armed forces. The communist nuclei must be formed in every military unit. Another critical condition, number 15, required national communist parties to render selflessly devo devoted assistance to the USSR. 
and to any future communist governments in its struggle against counter-revolutionary forces to urge workers to sabotage any efforts by their governments to transport war material to the Soviet Union's enemies and to carry on legal or illegal propaganda among the armed forces that are sent to struggle to strangle the workers' republic. In this way, a dangerous virus was injected into the international system with political parties in every significant country of the world devoted to routinely sabotaging and ultimately overthrowing their own governments while in the paid service of a foreign power, the USSR. Making Soviet influence oper operations still more explosive, the Bolsheviks had inherited Europe's largest gold reserves from the Tsarist regime until they were depleted in February 1922 to pay for English wool and high-end military imports, along with a bottomless supply of looted jewelry and diamonds in the vaults of the Moscow Gokhran or Central Treasury of Valuables. Now, that ends with McMeekin. I think I want to reemphasize those conditions that he places on the legal branches of the Communist Party, because even though the Soviet Union is defunct and communism of his brand is gone, the same exact DEI, woke, whatever you want to call it, conspiracy, which is a communist conspiracy, goes along these same lines. Does it sound familiar to us? So, for instance, let's talk about the conditions. There always has to be a shadow government. Do we not see shadow organizations in the form of NGOs that regularly meet puppet the American state and the American people for their own ends and sabotage our own problems. They take advantage of corrupt officials to overspend on the treasury. They overspend on welfare on purpose. They just have destructive economic policies on purpose. Isn't that interesting? Second, of course, Persistent and systematic propaganda and agitation among the armed forces and communist nuclei must be formed in every military unit. Now, this is true for American military now. Think about all the DEI, uh, what they call equal opportunity. Let a communists are so, so very good and slippery with these things, aren't they? Uh, they call it in things that are innocuous, right? They call their initiatives that are pernicious, innocuous things, right? But remember HR, there's no point to HR. But notice how every HR department is just about enforcing mores and standards which are in alignment with communist moral standards. They function as commissars. When people, when boomers say that uh, HR are a bunch of, com like, uh, how do you say, commissars, they are. They are, they just don't call themselves communists anymore. They don't just call themselves commissars. Because remember, remember that HR is the equivalent of a commissar in the sense that at the time, a commissar was nothing except for um, a provider of resources. It was a very innocuous term. It only took on the, that insidious uh, implicit understanding of what a commissar is after the Great Purge, after the evils of communism were made exposed. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So you have to remember, to, if you could take yourself back to the 1920s, 
how innocuous it must seem. All these terms, they were all very passive. They weren't violent. They were very pacifistic. And the tactics are the same. I mean, they invade every single, especially in the United States, the Equal Opportunity Initiatives, the DEI stuff, that's all a function of communist subversion of the United States. I mean, if we go forward, I mean, woke ideology, they uh, propagandize that kind of stuff. Teachers unions, for instance, have uh, their flags and stuff. Why do we have to have that? Shouldn't schools just be teaching the basic curricula? Isn't the premise of the American Republic an idea that we are, um, how do you say, well, this is liberal ideology. I'm not a liberal, but if we are to be true to the letter of the word, of the spirit of the law, the spirit of the law, of course, is to be impartial, to be impartial to our personal moral standards, right? To have our own moral standards, to not impose our moral standards upon others, right? That's the idea of liberalism. Is it not indoctrinating the youth? into your moral standards? Isn't that a violation of the contract, the social contract that ostensibly the American, Revo uh, American Revolution and the American Constitution establishes? Is that not interesting to you? It's something to think about. So even though, of course, we're talking about the Soviet Union and something as arbitrary as the past, or as to, to some as arbitrary as the past, these methods and modes are the same. You just have to get to know them. I continue. I don't want to bore you. However, I think as we continue, I think uh, I wanted to give some background as far as what Lenin's regime in the Soviet Union was like. There's some very messed up things that happened. So in his first few years of rule, I think he was alive until 1925, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he died in the, the mid-1920s. But basically, uh, homosexuality and all kinds of paraphilia were normalized. Abortion was legalized. The family was abolished. Um, all these columns of society, which are the, the very structures which give l rise to healthy life, to fulfilled lives, were legislated against. It was only with the death of Lenin and the ascension of Stalin that some of these policies were rolled back. Um, I, I think there are some very interesting things. So, for instance, at the beginning of Lenin's, how do you say, reign, there is a common communist understanding, uh, in their understanding, in material dialectics, that religion is an opium. It is not itself a truism, if that makes sense. And so... They understood still, even after the, com after the communist revolution, that the vast majority of Russians were not actually ideological communists. And so uh, they had a lot of interesting experiments, which are actually interesting on their face. But however, um, there are some interesting things that in the city of Smolensk, for instance, on three separate occasions, uh, the Communist Party locally was trying to create a communist religion that was centered around the figure of Judas Iscariot. Isn't that interesting? From the Bible. And basically to invert the story of the Christian gospel. Um, 
there were some very interesting uh, human sacrifices and stuff. It never took off, and to the credit of the Communist Party, which there is very little, uh, they repressed that and killed every one of them uh, that participated in such a thing. Obviously, it's not substantiated. It's a lot of conjecture. Um, I got this information from uh, Soviet historians who are Russians who delve into the history of the archives of the Soviet Union. A lot of this stuff is still buried. But I wouldn't take it too far because remember there are individuals like uh, Lysenko who was a biologist who believed that no race race didn't exist in the sense that it didn't they it wasn't subspeciation um that it was all the effect of material like jared diamond for instance it's the idea that it is the material realm which affects the genealogical expression of an organism specifically humans and that he would go into like siberia and he would show that uh, you know there's this peasant in freaking the Siberian Oblast that was born without uh, wisdom teeth and he would write articles about how this was the uh, culmination of uh, the, the proletariat's world revolution coming to light and that over time that every man will become more efficient, become the new Soviet man. It was actually very interesting. During Stalin's time, he actually investigated uh, biolo biologically so um, the crossover between apes, great apes like chimpanzees and gorillas with human beings and to see if they had viable offspring to form as a standard of labor which would basically elevate the state, the worker state so that way regular citizens of the Soviet Union wouldn't have to work and that it would be relegated to this um, hybrid class of people which is very interesting that they, they say that because ultimately if you read Costin Alamero's new book, uh, Selective Breeding, he kind of explains that every state, formative state, is functioned on an aristocracy over a subjugated class. And I think communists always are very consistent in this belief. That's the form of every communist uh, thing. Of course, this came to naught. This whole experiment came to naught. But there are some very interesting and wacky um, scientific explorations that happened especially when telekinesis uh, it's a lot of they try to play it down and try to gamify all these things and call you ridiculous for pointing it out and trying to spoof it but these things actually did happen um, but I'm getting too far ahead of myself but it's just I just wanted to give you those uh, funny little side stories because those things always kind of encapsulated me because as evil and terrible as the Soviet Union was it still had its positives. It still did good things. And I think it's a remiss... It's remiss of... It, it, it discredits you if you only see bad in things. However, for rhetorical purposes, you can never admit it. So if you're in an argument, you never admit it. If you're making propaganda, you never admit it. But if you're a private individual, you should always have the maturity to see what is good and what is bad, what you can take, and what you leave out. So... Here, Stalin become, begins the process of the five-year plan where he basically industrializes a heavily agrarian civilization, which is the Soviet Union at the time. Russia at the time was very backwards. Literacy was very low. Life expectancy was very low. Um, centralization was very low. Um, the uh, 
basically all the metrics of communism was non-existent. And so he put the Soviet Union on five-year plans with goals of metric tons of product to be shipped out, progress to be measured and met in metrics that were hard and gone. Um, and I think you have to give them credit because under Stalin, Russia, or rather the Soviet Union, and there's this big mistake that people mistake the Soviet Union for Russia. It's not Russia, it's the Soviet Union. It's a completely different state and they don't even have the same belief in the same people. Um, but I'm getting too afraid of myself. But basically they had this idea that they would hit and industrialize quickly. And so what did they do? All the conditions that I elucidated before about creating communist cells all across the world, especially in the United States, to give them um, intellectual property give them material aid, sympathizers in the government to help sub subvert the government of their host nation and pay tribute to the worker state, the Soviet Union. And I will continue right now. I'm returning to McMeekin. Although a political animal who, like Lenin, was willing to adjust his policies to evolving circumstances, Stalin was just as certain of his fundamental worldview. Far from abandoning his two camps theory of international relations after the fall of Belakun's Hungarian Soviet Republic in August 1919 and the failure of the German communists to take power in 1919, 1921, and 1923, Stalin doubled down. In his first major work after Lenin's death, Foundations of Leninism, 1924, Stalin endorsed Lenin's theory of revolutionary defeatism by which Lenin had predicted that proletarian revolution would occur not because of the inexorable growth of contradictions as prophesied in Marx's Das Kapital, but as a byproduct of imperialist war, as the first of the countries to be vanquished, would then be the first to fall. Though a less elegant theoretician than Lenin, Stalin was just as clear-headed about the circumstances that enabled the improbable Bolshevik triumph in 1917. Had the two chief coalitions of capitalist countries not been engaged in mortal combat during the imperialist war in 1917, he wrote in January 1925, had they not been clutch, clutching at each other's throats, it is doubtful whether the Soviet power would have survived. The lesson for the future of communism was clear. Europe might have been calm in the mid-1920s, but any Marxist student of history knew that the peace between the imperialist factions was, uh, was a precarious one. The losers of the last war, such as Germany, and even winners jealous of others' greater winnings, such as Italy and Japan, were smoldering with resentment over the terms imposed by the victors at Versailles. If war breaks out, Stalin held, told the central committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1925, we shall not be able to sit with folded arms. We will have to take action, but we shall be the last to do so. We shall do so in order to throw the decisive weight on the scales, the weight that can turn the scales. And so that is the end right there. I think it's important to mention a couple things. You know, this is what is coined as accelerationism and his famous quote, whom, 
who benefits what. It's a political dynamic in which communists are the, the best practitioners is that they're very flexible about their means. They're very firm about their ends. And that's why conservatives lose, is because conservatives make ends out of their means. So what does that mean? So for instance, uh, just a classic example. Let's talk about washing hands. Now, communists just want your hands to be clean. They don't care how it gets done. Get it done. Conservatives say that it must be with soap, and it must be with this, and it must be with that, and only then will it be legitimate that your hands are clean. Do you see in your mind that maybe there are many ways to skin a cat? The reason why communists and leftists are so dynamic and robust is because they are very flexible with their means. They're very agile, mentally agile. They're willing to do things outside of the scope of what is accepted. And which is why, of course, fascism is their ultimate enemy, because fascism is that belief too, except with diametric opposite ends, if that makes sense. So it's important that you get this because conservatism always loses. Conservatism is for losers. It's for the mentally weak. And um, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here, but bear in mind and maybe Google and do research on this term, whom, and start imbibing that in your political theory. Because as you can see, he was okay with allying with one capitalist faction or another. And remember, these communists, they believed that these were your ultimate enemy. These were evil people. You know what I mean? And so... If they have the stomach to sit shoulder to shoulder with their enemy to make alliances of convenience to ultimately make and their their own ends, so basically to co-opt even their enemy towards their own ends, so should you. And we should good be could especially us patriots of the West, we should be good practitioners of this concept called who whom and revolutionary expansion and so on. And all the ideas and the ways and the mechanisms by which you attain power, it is important that you do so. You imbibe this. Now, I think I went a little bit too far going down the Stalin rabbit hole. But this gives you the foundation of why things happened. And maybe some parallels between the past and the present. The same mechanism is being employed with different terms. It is just a camouflage. Of course, the Soviet Union doesn't exist, and the modern Russian state is a nationalist state, so it's a right-wing state. However, in America, there is still a communist uprising. We call it woke, which is really the stupidest term possible. It's just communism. It's just racial, cultural communism, Marxism utilizing the same tried and true methods of attaining power. And we will be going into the history of revolution, of the communist revolution and the subversion of the United States in the next episode. But I think it's a good place to leave off here. In the description below of this transmission, I'll be giving you some reading materials. 
to give you background and so that way in the future we'll be on the same page and so when we talk about events and names and now we'll name names oh brother I will you should know in what way these actors when they give you bullshit lies of how they're not part of one conspiracy or another how they act what's their modus operandi what are they doing why what are the ends that they have how will they play double agent and so on and so forth I think it's important and I'll, uh, it's some light reading material luckily for communists they always make it very easy to understand because remember communists their main political constituency is low IQ low beings which is not to say of course that there aren't clever communists or clever right uh, left-wing individuals there of course are cleverness has nothing to do with it fundamentally uh, what dictates your political um, bearing is a combination of nurture and nature and these people by nature of course are uh, uh, the sons of peasants I mean for instance Jugashvili is one and they're the sons of outcasts and so on and so forth and basically they, they were the bourgeois and the the lower sudra case right they're low cased individuals so it's a matter of temperament um, but like I said I'll be giving you reading materials and we'll be dissecting this as time goes on because if you can understand the mechanism in history with the context and you can understand how politics really works maybe we can use this to our advantage maybe we can be even better better practitioners uh, it's like that saying they may have made it but we perfected it baby and so brothers legionaries I'll leave you there we're here with sergeant Barnes and we're about to crush some communist perfidy general Lance out